Hello and welcome to the Majlis podcast, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's media manager here in Washington, D.C. I know we all, in fact, the whole world is discussing the crisis in Ukraine these days and what Russian President Vladimir Putin might have in mind for this country's future going forward. But as we speak, Russian tanks are roaming all around Ukraine. The Air Force is pinpointing and destroying targets in the face of all this. Ukraine, one of the most developed and populated former Soviet republics, seems to be helpless and at the mercy of President Putin. Having already annexed Crimea to the Russian territory, Putin uh, this week declared two Ukrainian regions independent, and the context in which he did this announcement has created shock waves throughout the region. This couldn't be felt more in countries in the backyard of Russia, in Central Asia. Authorities in Central Asia are silent but are concerned and perhaps scared about what all this tension could mean for them, politically and economically, in the short and the long term. On the economy, any shock in the Russian financial markets will be devastating for them. Uh, Their economies are extremely dependent on Russia, and some of them are part of the Russia-led Eurasia Economic Union. On the political side, Russia's recognition of Luhansk and Donbas independent, and it is possible plans for Ukraine's future can create even bigger political hurdles, especially the context in which Russia drags the whole region into its adventures in this or the other way. This could come as a result of direct political pressure or within the umbrella of CIS or CSTU. So there is a lot to talk about and today we are here just to do that. To discuss all these, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Stronsky, Senior Fellow in Carnegie Endowments Russia and Eurasia Program, Dr. Erika Marat, Associate Professor at the National Defense University, Alisher Sadiq, the Director of Radio Free Europe Radio Liberties Uzbek Service, locally known as Ozotlik, and Bruce Panier, the Editor of Radio Free Europe Radio Liberties Central Asia Blog, Kishlok Owazi. Thank you, colleagues, for joining us today. So let's start with, uh, with sort of your general observation of how Central Asia has been reacting so far or discussing the situation surrounding Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Perhaps we can start with you, Alisher, what you have been hearing. Yeah, as you as you pointed out, officially, nothing has been uh, said in general, even. So uh, they keep silence. Uh, the only quote that was uh, circulating since recently was a quote of uh, President Mirziyoyev. You know, the statement which he made under unknown circumstances in the uh, province of Karakal, Pakistan. So he's basically said we need to improve our economy and uh, our mm. defense. So very vague, but something. Hmm. So officials are very silent and uh, they are preparing kind of only for evacuation of Uzbek citizens in uh, Ukraine. They stopped flights between Ukraine and uh, Uzbekistan. So, But in general, the public is very concerned, very interested. You cannot imagine even. So everyone is like really scared, concerned, hmm. Hmm. though Uzbek officials are not saying anything intellectuals, journalists, bloggers, they're absolutely free to say many, many things about Putin these days, you know, with the very unpleasant words for what they are talking about, you know, all these things like crazy guy, stuff like that. So 
any anything there on the, very, anything very on the policy level you will find who would support him Mm. Uh, maybe uh, you know there are there, of course there is a big group of people we call them uh, people who are completely let's say consumed by zombie box this is how Russian television is called so these guys yeah they say yeah Putin was right blah blah this stuff like that but as you also pointed out very well the looming economic ramifications would also change their mind that's what we yeah. believe. I guess we are going to talk about that in a, in a bit. Also, uh, Erika, let me also bring you in here. You know, speaking of the mood on the streets, I have seen few protests taking place here and there in Kyrgyzstan and in Kazakhstan. I guess they are sort of expected, right? Yes, they are expected, but I have to say that they're not really big protests. And in Kazakhstan, especially, they were quickly dispersed by by the police. Um, and we know that Young Kazakhstan uh, organized a small demonstration. I would also want to add that even though uh, what we see on social media, especially on Twitter and Facebook, is condemnation of Putin and then siding with Ukraine, uh, feeling the pain that Ukrainians are going through right now, Um, I think Russian propaganda still has power in Central Asia. And I hear a lot of from, from the public that mm. there's quite a large part of the public in Central Asia that support Putin's actions and maybe not necessarily brutality that uh, is currently unfolding in Ukraine, but the general premise what, what that exactly Russia the- has the right That's what I was thinking about. What exactly they support, Rika? Uh, the general premise of Putin that uh, Ukraine is ruled by Nazi or whatever else extremist regime of, you know, the falsehoods uh, perpetrated by uh, Russian media and Kremlin. And then um, in a broad, broader scale, that the Soviet Union was a good thing and needs to be mm. restored. And Putin oh. is doing a good thing by restoring a Soviet Union. So I'm not saying, uh, it's, it's hard to say how much of the public shares mm. this these beliefs but we can't ignore that there are people who do in central asia still today those opinions also exist there yeah i was also watching our tajik service uh, works pop with local experts obviously their concern is driven by kitchen and butter issues like if russia is sanctioned there will be you know fewer jobs for migrant workers and in in that the whole uh, tension is very close to home Um, so i guess they are right and they have seen this movie repeating in limited version after russia invasion of Crimea and we are going to talk about that but just want to throw that so Paul uh, when you look into Central Asia what is your reading in terms of their reaction or lack thereof well I think you know thus far I think uh, surprisingly I would think think the the most vocal reaction I've heard is from the Kazakh uh, foreign minister where he pretty much indicated that they were not going to follow you know Russia's lead in recognizing Donetsk and Luhansk those were the two the most bold statements out there and I thought it was kind of interesting given that the Kazakh government is so uh, now dependent and has has some chips it needs to to pay back to Putin um, that I think that was uh, certainly a uh, Notable. Um, I would also uh, agree with Erica. I mean, I think from what I'm hearing, you know, whether it's it's the Nazis, whether it's the collapse of the Soviet, you know, these allegations of, of neo-Nazism, which is false, whether it's the you know lamenting the collapse of the Soviet Union, but also this belief that that Ukraine is controlled by the West and this entire thing was orchestrated by the West and instead of by Russia. I think that that narrative um, is is certainly there. Um, but I do think you know this is very worrying uh, for these these states. Um, if you look at you know, the language 
that Putin used to yeah. deny Ukrainian history um, yeah. and deny, you know, he's denying the Ukrainian people the right to to elect their their governance, denying the Ukrainian people, you know, the right to have their own history uh, and their own uh, state. Some of that same language, you know, could certainly be uh, we've heard before uh, in places like Kazakhstan. That's probably why the Kazakhs mm-hmm. came out and said what they said. And I think you know, there's there's also been you know Russian uh, mucking around in other places uh, throughout the region as well and in, in potentially stoking or fears that they could stoke problems. Mm. I found interesting that Mirziyoyev said all of that in Karakal, Pakistan um, as well. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of these countries, they're nervous. They're trying to keep their heads yeah. down. Yeah. They uh, recognize the implications this could have yeah. for them, particularly you know, when, you know, he's, he's, Putin has been sort of talking about, you know, wanting to sort of reestablish some sort of Soviet yeah. core. Um, and so I think, you know, they're they're trying to keep their heads down. They're trying not to upset uh, Russia, uh, but they're going to have a huge amount of problems on their hand moving forward. Um, yeah. I would I would say, you know, the, the biggest ones is going to be economics. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not just uh, the, you know, the migrant issue, mm-hmm. uh, but also, you know, as more and more Russian banks are getting sanctioned, yeah. uh, many of these, many co- uh, companies uh, throughout the region do their transactions through many of these banks. Yeah. Um, and so they're going to have a lot of problems, you know, moving forward doing international transactions. And, and where are they going to continue to, mm. to work through those banks or, or risk breaking the sanctions? Yeah. And then, you know, we're going to see, um, you know, whole fluctuations right now um, in commodity prices. Mm. Grain is certainly mm. uh, going to be affected. Uh, oil uh, and gas are certainly mm. going to be affected. You know, I'm, I, I'm happy that you started talking about that, uh, Paul. So I, I realized that we have an expert to go into details of what all these sanctions might mean for Central Asia. And definitely, we are going to talk about this in length. But before that, Bruce, your thoughts, like kind of a general observation of the way Central Asia is reacting, authorities, expert community and locals, the way they are reacting or uh, what they are saying and what they are not saying. What's your interpretation of that? Like we've heard, people are trying to, except for a few protests, um, people are trying to keep a low profile on this one. It's kind of hard to say what media they would use to express their opinions on on some of this stuff. You know, there's social media, and I watch that. And some people are from Central Asia are clearly horrified by what's happening in Ukraine. You know, but I, I think you know with something like that Paul touched on a minute ago is is probably on the minds of all of them. Is that when Putin starts talking about historical lands, that includes Central Asia, of course. You know, and this has got to be something that people are thinking about. Uh, you know, that he could make the same claim that Russia has occupied Central. Asia since the 19th century, you know, at different and different parts of it, you know, and then and then of course that you know Ali Shir brought up that Mirzioyev made his comments when he went to Karakal, Pakistan. It's it's strange because of course we you know we know that Karakal, Pakistan wants greater autonomy and even independence from Uzbekistan. Some people there, so you know that that's another thing that Putin brought up. Recognition of separatist regions is something that that also makes a lot of. And not just government officials, but regular people uncomfortable in Central Asia. Um, they've gotten used to the looking at the map and seeing where their countries are, you know, and you start legitimizing separatism. If, if it's backed by a great power, um, you know, where, where exactly is this in? We like said we just did the show on Gorno-Badakhshan a while yeah, ago, yeah. you know, and so there's there's air pockets all over Central Asia where you can make a case that, yeah. that people would, you know, if you're going to loosely define separatist regions and, mm-hmm. you know, as areas that are potentially recognizable by by, by major governments, you know, it opens up a whole can of worms that a lot of people don't want to hmm. see opened. You know? 
suppose. Yeah, there is also no end to that. And when you look into Central Asian map, so um, obviously there are you know there are expert communities earlier. Alisher was also referring to some of them really really concerned about the possible economic and political implications of all this to the region. I was hoping to dive into this in a second half of the conversation. Again, the genuine fear that the region is economy uh, is so much intertwined with those of Russia. If the, there was to be a shock in the Russian financial market, especially in the context of severe sanctions that the Western countries are talking about, they are worried about their implications in the region. Also, the political implications of all this to the region, a couple of you already hinted that, given Putin declared two Ukrainian regions independent and sent troops there as peacekeepers. Uh, the context in which he also made his announcement is sort of sent chilling waves so many former Soviet republics as Bruce was just talking about. So let's continue the conversation by talking about some of the yet to be seen implications of the ongoing crisis to Central Asia and how they are preparing for this. Before that, let me recap the debate that today on the Majlis podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Stronsky, Senior Fellow in Carnegie Endowment's Russian Eurasia Program, Dr. Erika Marat, Associate Professor at the National Defense University, Alisher Sadiq, the Director of Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty's Uzbek Service, and Bruce Panier, the Editor of Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty's Central Asia Blog, Kishlok Owazi. I'm Mohamed Tahir, host of the Majlis here in Washington, D.C., and we are discussing the Central Asian perspective on Russian-Ukrainian crisis and what this could mean for the region. So, uh, you know, a couple of you already brought up this. I wish we could have unpacked this earlier, the statement that President Putin made about Ukraine as a whole when uh, declaring so-called Luhansk and Donbas republics independent. You know, Kamaluddin Rabimov, political expert, I'm sure uh, some of you know him, uh, speaking to our Kazakh service, this is how he interpreted the speech and I'm quoting him, he says, Putin believes that he cannot declare war on everyone at the same time. However, by declaring Luhansk and Donbas independent, Putin made it clear that he would continue gathering Russian lands. And he goes on, the main thesis of Putin's speech on Monday was that in the Soviet years, territories belonging to Russia were unfairly transferred to other Union republics. In the last two years, he often mentioned this in his speeches. So that's what earlier, Bruce, you were talking about. Does Kamalatin his point here? Well, like I said, that's, I think that's one of the scary things about this is, you know, Putin has said it, you know, it was the, one of the biggest disasters of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, now he's, he appears like he's trying to reincorporate Ukraine into a greater Russia, or at least have install his own government that's very favorable to the Kremlin. You know, you can imagine the Baltic states, of course, and you've seen this too on social media, that some people in the Baltic states are a little scared about this on themselves. But like I said, you know, where, where does this exactly end? We've had, not only has Putin mentioned that Kazakhstan never had, was a, a state or a nation, um, you know, but he's even got people in the, the Duma that have, have mentioned, you know, within the last six or seven months that, uh, you know, nobody was living in northern Kazakhstan until the Russians came there. All the Kazakhs lived in the south. You know, they, they have no claim to that land. Of course, in the first 10 years after independence, there were Russians in northern Kazakhstan that, that thought that they should be part of Russia, not part of Kazakhstan. That was uh, one of the reasons people gave, not not officials in Kazakhstan, but one of the reasons they gave for transferring the capital from Almaty to Astana, Nursultan now. You know, it was just to stake a claim to the northern part of Kazakhstan and, and kind of make clear that, they, you know, uh, they weren't going to be able to, you know, these, these separatists 
in northern Russian separatists in northern Kazakhstan wouldn't be able to take that section away and, and attach it to Russia in the future. So, like I said, it's something you gotta you gotta really think about. Where does this stop exactly? You know, I'd be worried if I was in northern Kazakhstan. But what, you know, if they do make a move and and there's some and claim that the Russian ethnic Russian population is being discriminated against, uh, and of course we know that nationalism is rising in Central Asia, and it doesn't exclude some harsh verbal attacks on, on Russians living in the country. We just saw the incident at the arcade in Kyrgyzstan last summer, I think, when uh, the guy, the Kyrgyz man threw a calculator at a Russian girl who was working there and, a, you know, Zirinovsky was in the Duma denouncing it and screaming about, you know, it's time to either cut Kyrgyzstan off or reincorporate it or something. So, you know, for Putin to sit there, especially the way he delivered that, that speech, too, you know, it's got to get people the creeps. Central Asia wondering if he, he hasn't totally lost it. Ukraine is first and, you know, where's next after that? Yeah. You know, before Ukraine, before Ukraine, there was a, a Georgian scenario that we have seen in terms of South Ossetia. You know, Crimea is also there. And, uh, Erika, you, you might also want to jump in here. One is that Putin is talking about this in, in the context of Ukraine. What are the real possibilities that this scenario could repeat in Central Asia? So, uh, like with anything else related to uh, Putin's aggression, I want to be proven wrong in the future. But I think it's now is the time to start imagining the previously implausible scenarios uh, for Kazakhstan. Just like for Kazakhstan, this is uh, where Ukraine was in 2014 or 2008 uh, when Putin invaded Georgia. So I think if Putin succeeds in uh, creating chaos and staying in power, so creating chaos, he has succeeded in creating chaos and uh, Ukraine but if he continues to stay in power, Kazakhstan is next. And Kazakhstan, as Bruce just mentioned, has been part of this uh, long-term rhetoric of hate from Putin and his uh, loyalists. Uh, from time to time, they uh, stir up the discussion with claims for northern Kazakhstan, not so veiled claims for northern Kazakhstan. So there will be the next stage in recreating the Soviet Union from Moscow's perspective, from, from Putin's perspective. Kazakhstan seems to be the next logical step because Baltic states are part of NATO and that, that's also another direction where Putin can go. But Kazakhstan seems to be a logical step. And we don't know what kind of form it will take, but I think this is the time to start imagining how it can happen. Mm. That's the, the references that, that Putin gave uh, when talking about Ukraine's history. But also, Paul, your background as the diplomat, I think you might be well suited to answer this question. Like now, Putin also declared um, Luhansk and Donbass region of Ukraine <laughs> as so-called independent states. So what are the uh, scenario going forward could Russia drag the region to follow the suit? And could Russia also involve CIA somehow to support where it stands in terms of those so-called republics? I think this is very difficult. I think the only person who knows uh, what uh, what's in Putin's mind is actually Putin himself. And he probably doesn't even know, you know, what is in, in Putin's mind. You know, I think if, you know, from the Russian perspective, if their campaign uh, in, in Ukraine goes well, it seems to be going fairly well so far, um, although they seem to be getting a little bit more resistance in some places, at least 
according to the Pentagon uh, reports I've read. If it goes well and it's quick, you know, there might not be need to sort of pull everybody else in. If it also, uh, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, the Russians, and, and this is an implication for the rest of the region, um, is is basically how this campaign goes. You know, you can take a country fairly easily, as the U.S. learned in Iraq in 2007, mm-hmm. but can, can you govern a hostile country where there's going to be rebellions and rebels? Mm-hmm. And so we don't know how this is going to play out down the road. I think that gives the region of, of Central Asia, you know, a little bit of breathing space. I actually think, you know, countries like Moldova might be more in, in trouble um, uh, in the in the short term future. Uh, but I think, you know, these countries, um, they're going to be in a, in a tough balancing act. You know, none of them are going to be want to be pressured uh, into recognizing uh, these entities. They will be pretty much become pariah states mm. uh, to the outside world. It would also cause them problems with China, which is not on board with recognition of these two entities. You know, so my, my gut is that they will just try to keep their heads low. They'll have to make some difficult decisions at the UN. I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot of abstentions um, at, at the UN. But I think, you know, particularly on the recognition front, um, I think they also could probably hide uh, under China uh, and not pursue that that recognition. And I think that's a, one of the a positive things that that gives them a little bit of, of room. Uh, and I think they would all be very hesitant to, you know, get involved militarily. Can, I think, you know, the CSTO can, can uh, was... They, can they afford being hesitant? I mean, Putin, uh, I think as, as we know, they, Putin. I think they will be summoned. We've already seen Azerbaijani leader get summoned to Moscow. Right. Um, I think we'll we'll see a lot of these leaders get summoned to Moscow um, in a very clear vision that they are not going to to help Russia show that they are not isolated. Um, I could certainly see some of these uh, elements, particularly after Kazakhstan, CSTO peacekeepers maybe having to go in. Yeah. Uh, that I think would be there would need to be a scenario uh, that would need to be created for that. Maybe that maybe the going into you know eastern uh, part of eastern Ukraine. Um, uh, But I think, you know, we'll at least see on the diplomatic front, we'll see, you know, lots of lots of shuttling back and forth. But I think all of these states, uh, including the CSTO ones, would resist stepping in uh, right away. I think, you know, they don't want their soldiers. um, These countries are all all authoritarian, but they also have, you know, publics that that care about, you know, the young uh, men who would have to go in there. So Mm -hmm. I think they would be be highly resistant, knowing that neither China or the West would want to see them there. uh, And they'd have to be able to balance but we're definitely going to see a lot of shuttle diplomacy uh, mm. between Moscow and the, the five central, uh, at least four of the five Central Asian uh, mm. states. Yeah, I guess, you know, the young Berd Mohamedov in Turkmenistan must be thinking about the, that he don't have to deal with any of them being a neutral country there. But anyway, Alisher, if you have any thoughts to add in terms of the political, possible political implications of that going forward, please go ahead and share your you know, opinions. But in the meantime, I had some economic question to you. I guess the economy is very, very serious economic side of this. It's obvious that sanctions are going to bite Russia in the Russian financial institutions. So in which ways do you anticipate this to affect your country, Uzbekistan or Central Asia in a broader context? I believe that Uzbekistan will be economically the most affected at this point because there are kind of two parts there. First is Russia is the largest trade partner of Uzbekistan Hmm. and uh, the largest investor. They have all joint oil and gas projects. Lukoil is there, Gazprom is there, all the 
you know, metal explorations and processing companies. So a lot of uh, Uzbek companies are producing products that are meant to be sent to Russia, vegetables, you know, everything, agriculture, chemistry. So uh, if you look from that perspective, you may even say that uh, President Mirziyoyev put all eggs in, into one basket in terms of uh, economy. Then there's a second big part is migrants, you know, rising dollars rate in Russia makes it impossible to earn enough money and send back to Uzbekistan. So last year, Uzbek labor migrants sent nearly a record, a staggering $8 billion in remittances. It's a very, very big money for Uzbekistan. Yeah, it's more than it's exports of everything combined. So migrants issue will be huge. And then what would be next for these migrants to return to Uzbekistan and increase unemployment? So it's pretty grim, let's say, prospect mm. on the economic side. Mm. So mm. how Uzbekistan will diversify yeah. uh, its economy going further, that mm -hmm. would be a big question. Yeah. I guess Tajiks may have the same concerns. Maybe Kazakhstan, lesser extent, you know, maybe Kyrgyzstan has the same issue, yeah. of course. Yeah. So economically falling Russia, if Russia is falling sort of a gradually, but here the countries in the Russia's sort of a backyard, yeah. they're, they're going down faster. The kind of same question like, you know, Paul, I guess this is your area. Please forgive my ignorance when I ask this question. I have no idea how these sanctions work. Western leaders are talking about this severe, unprecedented sanctions that they have in mind. President Biden was talking about the Europeans are also stepping up their sanctions. When a certain institution, bank or any other financial institution is sanctioned, what does that mean? What does that mean for Central Asia? Like you can't do business with that bank or what? How does it um, work? It, it, it's it's pretty much um, you know most of global transactions are done in dollars um, and so you know these banks uh, are are precluded from both doing uh, transactions both now in dollars and in euros so it makes it very difficult for these uh, if they do not want to be in violation uh, which then can get them sort of kicked out of the doing business with the US financial or European financial system uh, they have to be very careful in going around you saw sort of saw this um, if you look at, at China China, um, and how Chinese banks reacted. Many of the Chinese commercial banks actually abided by uh, U.S. sanctions um, after 2014 uh, against Russia, where it was more of the state banks that were willing to, to buck them because they had the Chinese state behind, behind them. Uh, and I do know in 2014-2015, uh, there was a lot of issues within the U.S. government of how to carve out ways in which former Soviet states could do financial tra transactions basically because the majority of the of the banks uh, that that are in the region uh, are engaged with Russian banks right. um, so there was a lot of I, I do know all of uh, ambassadors US ambassadors uh, in the region were busy cabling back to Washington highlighting the challenges that uh, these banking san sanctions posed both for um, you know local businesses but also some you know American companies uh, that were trying to get uh, money into or out of the region mm -hmm. so it, it is a it's going to be a big uh, complication I'm sure 
sure that the U.S. government is trying to work with these these countries to try to figure out avenues around it. And you know, we'll see where that goes. Um, you know, some of these states, I could imagine, um, surprisingly, Georgia, I, I saw today, said that it was not going to abide by some of these new sanctions, basically in, in an effort to avoid uh, antagonizing the Russians. We'll see whether you know some Central Asian states come out and say that. But even if the states come out and say that, there very well might be individual companies within those countries that that might actually have have different different views. Um, mm-hmm. So, like the Chinese firms, China was not going to abide by the sanctions, but the Ch- Chinese commercial banks certainly did. Okay, that's about the bank. But what about like earlier, Alisher was talking about Luke Oil, the Russian company being active in Uzbekistan, like companies who also fall under these sanctions. How does it affect their activities in in some of those countries? I'm not sure. It, I, 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 I'm not a sanctions expert, you know, beyond the, the beyond the basics. So I'm not sure, you know, how how exactly it will um, uh, impact it. I do know that these are geared far more t- towards international investment into into Russia. Um, but I think, you know, it, it does will make people think twice, uh, make international investors think twice about engaging, you know, with these uh, these entities. Um, and I'm, you know, pretty sure that these countries, you know, also may be under pressure from Russia to respond uh, mm. against American investors there um, as well. So, you know, I think for the investment climate, these sanctions uh, are bad uh, overall. You're going to have more Western countries being wary about investing because of the risks. Uh, And then, you know, I think there's going to be and the collateral risks of of investing in something that in Kazakhstan that might have a connection. Um, So I think this is really going to be problematic for um, attracting uh, broader based investment uh, into the region. Yeah, Bruce, I was also thinking about the uh, Euro-Asia Economic Union that that's the kind of Russian led uh, economic union involving a couple of Central Asian countries there, whether Russia could uh, play that card in some ways to ease the impact and what that could mean for the member countries. Where is that going to put the member countries? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I'm trying to figure out what exactly they can do. Uh, you know, I mean, so far, for instance, you know, for one example, like the Eurasian Economic Union is supposed to make it easier for migrant workers from the member countries to, to work in Russia, but then we just saw that the Kyrgyz were forced to submit to these these medical tests, I think they're monthly or something, that they come at their own expense. I mean, they weren't exempted from that, even though they're part of the Eurasian Economic Union. So I'm not really sure what, you know, what they could do. Does Russia have money that they say we can make up the difference on something like this? Well, no, you know, not really. So I don't see the Eurasian Economic Union playing any kind of role that Russia couldn't do, you know, just by itself in bilateral relations, no. which would really have to do because only Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan are Eurasian Economic Union no, members. I, I was just thinking about from a different perspective, like whether Russia could use this in its advantage as it is isolated, right? When it is isolated, whether Russia could use this as an advantage to make Central Asian countries do something which could ease Russia's, uh, you know, burden. No, I don't really... You know, this would be tough, you know, both generally speaking of the Central Asia as a region because they trade with all kinds of different people. You can't adopt rules that you want to help you out or, or hurt certain, you know, the West or something, right? Without having to worry about, you know, China and the Middle East uh, have to trade with them too. So, you know, you can't, how, how do you make rules that are going to work for everybody? And with for the two member states of the, the countries, like I said, I, it's hard for me to imagine that they would agree to something that's not going to be in their own interest. I mean, Kyrgyzstan's already had a real hard time being a member of that organization. 
uh, and have complained a bunch about the fact that it, it, it hasn't seemed to make very much of a difference to them at all. Mm. So I, I don't see what threat Russia has, what leverage it has through mm. that organization that it could say, you better play our game or else, because the response is going to be, we're not getting that much out of it. You know, so why why would we do this? Yeah, that that's what. Whether they can say that to Russia, whether they can say that to Putin, that's what I was wondering on the back of my mind. I mean, when Russia say, "Okay, you are a member of this, let's work together." I mean, I have a thought on that. Yeah. If, if I can go. Yeah. I think the most sort of the coercive power that Russia has in this is probably not mm. through the Eurasian Union. It would be mm. either, um, I mean, Russia is willing to show its teeth, its coercive yeah. teeth and yeah. using its hard military yeah. toolkit against Ukraine. Yeah. I could certainly see uh, countries in the CSTO coming under more pressure uh, mm. than countries in the uh, Eurasian Economic Union. One thing that I think we have to also remember is that, you know, this will likely give Russia's neighbors uh, in Central Asia and the Central Asian states, you know, a little bit of leverage. If we look back at two 2014, mm. all of these countries were really very nervous, kept their heads down for the first few months, um, mm. and then got a little bit bolder. And the Eurasian Union's, the final negotiations on establishing the Eurasian Union were in the spring um, 2014 after um, uh, Russia had annexed, illegally annexed Crimea. Yeah, yeah. And so you did see Nazarbayev, um, and you actually saw Lukashenko at that point, really pushing back um, and trying to get the best deal in the Eurasian Union, effectively stripping out a lot of the political commitments that it, that it would have. And so it is a pretty hollow union. It's a pretty hollow document mm, yeah. uh, that is in there. Um, and I could also see, you know, particularly if this, this gambit in Ukraine does not go well, for Russia, um, uh, and that becomes clear as it became clear, you know, two months um, after Crimea. Uh, you know, I could see some of these countries uh, being a little bit bolder. Right now, they're going to be very cautious, mm-hmm. but particularly on the Eurasian Union, I don't see it playing all that role. Mm-hmm. The CSGO, uh, perhaps. Yeah. But I also think, you know, these countries have are, are possibly will get some leverage out of this yeah. uh, too. So, in the dip so other other than Russia, other than the Russia connection, I mean, these things also have implications locally to some of those Central Asian countries. Like you brought up. Uh, the the story with uh, with the uh, illegal annexation of Crimea. You know, following that, uh, f- for example, speaking of Kazakhstan, Tenga was really losing value, and the cost of keeping it stable for Kazakhstan was during 2014 and 15 28 billion dollars. And Kazakhstan mm-hmm. was doing that because I guess that was an election year for Nazarbayev, and Nazarbayev felt to do something like that. But it's a it's a huge, huge cost. Not all Central Asian country, countries can afford that. So this local kind of implication, Erika, where do you see these sort of local implication popping up aside from the Russian connection of Central Asian economy? So yeah, it, it is hard to say, but of course, the, any uh, economic de- decline or stagnation will uh, further fuel grievances um, across Central Asia, and uh, you know, grievances that have nothing to do with with Russia, but are more domestic and against uh, local gov- governments or national governments. Yeah, it's not it's not helpful. Of course, I think it's a dual um, economic impact. Right, one is what will happen to migrant remittances, given that ruble and um, other currencies, the regional right. currencies are uh, devaluing, um, and also what will happen domestically on the local level, given that uh, Russian economy will likely also see some decline. So the, this is a kind of double-edged sword um, in terms of what, sorry, not double-edged sword, but uh, two-level two imp- economic impact on, on Central Asia. And uh, some countries will be able to 
I think whether it's a little better than others, I think countries that have more labor migrants in Russia will actually likely to be able to weather it better. Because labor remittances, no matter economic mm. situation in uh, both sending and recipient countries, they tend to stabilize the economic situation in recipient countries yeah. during crises. Yeah, for that, they need to have a plan. Uh, in the meantime, also, we need to wrap up the conversation very short. So what kind of plan are they thinking about? Alishir, do you have any thoughts into Yeah, Mirzi Ayub said what he said in, during his visit to Karakal, Pakistan. But, you know, these possible implications on the political, on the economic level that we are talking about, which is imminent, which is going to come on their way. What kind of contingency plan that they are preparing for this? I, I, I don't think they like have a plan at this point. They mm. just many just horrified and uh, they're afraid they're they don't know how it's gonna play out for Putin. It's uh, there, there are many question marks at this mm. point. Maybe Ukraine is a Putin's political grave. Maybe not. Maybe he will come victorious and get even more powerful and uh, be very explicit while talking to presidents of post-Soviet republics. Maybe he will be just openly putting his demands forward. Maybe he will softer, will, will become softer. We don't know. But in short term, what we are seeing that, of course, it, it is a kind of a a signal to all these republics that Russia is toxic. So, and being with Russia, you're going to get in trouble too. So you'll keep Russia at certain distance, as they always do. Keep some kind of neutrality. Don't go into like, uh, you know, these NATO things or, you know, don't don't get there too much. It's uh, interesting because geographically, Central Asian countries, for example, they are blocked by Russia. So they don't have way further, you know, towards West, it's Mm -hmm. only Russia. So they cannot go back to China. They're afraid of China. They they don't go to Afghanistan or Pakistan or India or Iran. So that's a completely different world for them. So that's why they will try to to diversify economy. This is that's going to be number one. Logically, it, it will it would be a good time to think how to not rely on migrant remittances, how to expand your trade partners, though it will be very hard in the short terms, maybe in the long terms, many will have to make decisions. Yeah. You know, it's 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 the same for Europe. I mean, even here, Europe is now thinking about its dependency on Russian mm-hmm. energy. In Central Asia, the reviewing their dependence on Russia's you know, financial the, markets, on, yeah. their ba- on their banks, mm. on their partnership. Certainly, this should be a wake-up call for uh, Central Asia and, and also for Europe. But in Central Asia's case, to Alishir, how, how you really take those kind of steps in terms of expanding your partners' trade relations and or maybe political relations with those who really matters. I mean, earlier you said Russia is a toxic. You need to get away from it. Yes, but when you're trying to get away from, from it, then we have have seen in the case of Ukraine, Georgia, maybe in, in some ways in Armenia, you when you take certain steps that Russia don't like, you end up being uh, the target. And especially this time, I mean, how the region would really reach out to the West with a proposal of expanding ties when Russia is under sanction by those powers, it's, it's going to drive Putin nuts. Um, you know, I, I guess we are walking in the field of lots of unknowns as we speak. We, we don't know how the Ukraine crisis is going to shape up, what will be the short and long term implications of this for Russia and for Putin. And based on that, what and how Central Asia is going to react to 
to the reality at hand. I guess we will have to wait and see where uh, we go next from here on, on so many levels. So let's end the conversation on that note. So where you will be looking at uh, to determine where uh, things might be headed in how it might relate to Central Asia. I'm going to ask brief comments from each of you on that question. So let's start with you, Paul. Well, I think, you know, what's important is we really don't know. I mean, this is playing out in real time, uh, and it's a it's a tragedy for the entire region. Um, and I think a lot of it will depend uh, on how, you know, what plays out in, in Ukraine, both uh, in the immediate brutal assault uh, against the country, uh, but also it certainly looks like Putin is going to, you know, try to fully uh, occupy the country. What happens uh, with that occupation? I think the countries are going to, you know, try to lay low, try to reach out to China, the United States quietly. But, you know, the United States is, has, for the most part, disengaged from the region. So, so they don't have all that many options. But I think, you know, for at least the short term, they're going to be quiet, going to be, you know, trying to shore up in various ways, public images of their sovereignty, and just just hope that Russia doesn't turn its its sort of brutal attention uh, back to, to them. Mm. Erika, what, where your eyes are going to be? going forward in terms of what comes next and all how how Central Asia also navigate this thing. Yeah, it's it's tough for Central Asia to to navigate this. Um, I think my eyes would be mostly on the rhetoric coming from Kremlin and not just from Putin, but also from Russian ambassadors in Central Asia who from time to time engage in really aggressive rhetoric as well um, in the region about what kind of foreign policy Central Asian countries should be adhering to. And um, I'll be looking at how Kremlin is trying to limit uh, foreign policy choices for Central Asia Mm, mm. and uh, at the same time supporting their loyalists, trying to engage their loyalists in Central Asia. Mm. Again, like, for instance, the son of uh, Rahman Mm. in Tajikistan. Yeah, and various pro-Russia forces uh, across Central Asia as well. Mm. Okay, um, that's a very interesting point you raised, but we have to conclude the conversation. So, Alisher and Bruce, uh, so where, where you will be watching? Alisher? I really don't know, really, you know, (laughs) and uh, I I thought about China's role, you know, how, what China will will try to offer at this moment. Mm. I thought about maybe, you know, Central Asian countries can be united, sort of a force Mm. that's also very difficult. I think we will be just uh, near Russia all the time, doomed. Mm and slowly slowly going down with it and when it when it goes mm-hmm. up going up with it so it's it's the you know the gravity of russia is too strong there and uh, in all spheres mm-hmm. so that's why that's going to be too very difficult to do anything and to look into very specific mm-hmm. we see how countries like ukraine georgia ended up eventually yeah. when they tried to to, to cut their ties or to, to loosen this gravity. Yeah. So That's very interesting. And, uh, Bruce, all the interesting questions come up at the end of our conversation, I know it. But this Russia being isolated, being toxic, as Alicia put it earlier, I guess this also kind of open up opportunities for other countries where they can benefit from and come into Central Asia. China is already there. But um, anyway, um, I don't like to expand the conversation. So where your eyes are going to be? Those are, my eyes are going to be on Turkey. 
Mm. Actually, yes. Yes. Uh, you know, Turkey's already been up in its game in Central mm. Asia. This, uh, it does have something of a trade route that, through the Caucasus that connects with Central Asia. And let's face it, what's going on affects the balance of power in the Black Sea. This would be a brilliant time for Turkey to step up and really push more engagement with, with the, at least the Turkic-speaking states of Central Asia just to counter Russia's moves in Ukraine and to you know, give the Kremlin something else to think about besides just Ukraine at the moment. So I'm, I'm going to be looking and seeing what Erdogan and, and Ankara do in the coming weeks and months. Very interesting. Yeah, they just uh, launched this empowered Turkic consul, even Berdu Muhammedov, who was their first time attending the meeting in Istanbul a couple of months ago. Anyway, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. So we all will be looking at uh, where, first of all, where things go with Ukraine, what uh, Vladimir Putin ends up doing with Ukraine, with its future. You know, there are lots of questions, but we will keep our eyes on on all of them. So with that, thank you very much, Dr. Paul Strunsky, Senior Fellow in Carnegie Endowments Russia and Eurasia Program, Dr. Eric Marat, Associate Professor at the National Defense University, Ali Shir Sadiq, the Director of Radio Free or Radio Liberties Uzbek Service, and Bruce Panier, the Editor of Radio Free or Radio Liberties Central Asia Blog, Kishlok Owazi. Thank you, colleagues, for your time today. And this is from me, Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio Free or Radio Liberties Media Manager here in Washington, D.C. Until next week, bye-bye.